in the table of contents right at the front. As you're turning, I just want to praise God with you. A week ago, we had a wonderful time with many women from TCC gathering to uh, have a seminar here on the weekend. We talked about women and the patience of God, and it was a glorious time, and we bonded well. So we praise God for that. Now, in two weeks, it is time for the men. It's the men's turn. And when the men gather together, they do it in a forest. So, men of TCC, we we are camping out in a couple of weeks, uh, Saturday and on into Sunday, so you have our permission to miss church if you go on this trip. It'll be a lot of fun. We're going to the URI National Forest, and we're going to be discussing God and manhood. Should be a blast. If you have no camping experience, don't sweat it. Come along. If you're a hardcore Rambo camper, we want that too, because there are trails that you can bike on and run. Uh, it'll be a really good time. See me for details. Again, that's March 8th. And night. That's a Saturday all day, and then we'll come back on Sunday. It should be a blast. We're looking forward to it, and we'd love for you to join us. Good morning. Like they mentioned, we are going to be in Acts 9 today, so if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Acts chapter 9. And we are going to be going through uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. I'm going to read the first five verses of the chapter, and then we'll pray and we'll jump into the text. Acts 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, that we have to come together as a united people to hear afresh of the good news that you continue to use to transform hearts and lives and circumstances for your own glory. Lord, we know that it is entirely an act of the Holy Spirit to illumine your word to our hearts, to help us to see its truth, to help us to see your beauty, your glory through the word. It is not something that we can force by our own uh, talents and our own efforts. But Lord, you must do it. So we pray that you would do that this morning. Help us to love you. Help us to cherish you. Help us to see you with new eyes this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. These are the lyrics to perhaps one of the most beloved and well-known Christian hymns of all time, known by all Christians. And they are so simply because of their simplicity, their beauty, and because of the profound truth that they convey that is so basic to every Christian's experience. His life prior to coming to know the Lord and his life afterwards. Being blind and now seeing. And yet it's amazing that these lyrics were penned by a man who probably came to know the Lord in a much more dramatic way than any of us probably did. The man who wrote this, the hymn Amazing Grace, his name was John Newton, and he was a, a hard man. He was an immoral man. He was so immoral that even his immoral friends would be like, Yo, that guy's jacked up. That guy, we do some shady stuff, but John, he was one of the, the worst people of, of his circle of friends. And he was traveling one day on a ship, on a ship that was hardly seaworthy. This ship was busted. It probably shouldn't have been taken out in the first place. And one writer describes what happened to John like this. He says, One night he was awakened by a violent wave crashing against the vessel, and water filled his cabin. He hurried above to the deck and found that some of the timbers had been ripped away and all were in terrible danger as the ship plunged through a furious storm. Men were pumping desperately. Clothes and bedding were stuffed into holes and boards nailed over them. Some of the members were thrown overboard. And this fight, this battle, this fight for survival lasted for about four weeks. During this trial, John Newton was reduced to a shell of himself and was forced to revisit some of the basic questions of life. The result was that John Newton became a Christian. Now this man may not have a story, a conversion story that is identical with yours, but the encounter that he had at a heart level is identical with every Christian in this room. When God deals with a man or woman, he, he addresses and deals with the heart in exactly the same way. It's a hostile heart that is against him, set against him, that he must forcibly change and draw to himself. This is the reason why we can look at men like John Newton, and although his conversion story is so much different in a sense than our own, most likely, we can still share so much in his experience, as evidenced in this beloved song. And it is also why we will share and challenge ourselves today with perhaps the most well-known conversion story, and that is the Saul of Tarsus. So in today's text, we, we were back in the book of Acts, and, and we were turning back to the life of Saul, and we were first introduced to Saul back at the end of Acts chapter 7 into the beginning of Acts chapter 8, where we observed Saul standing coldly, undisturbed, only a few feet away from a man who was being pelted with stones and bloodied and killed. 
And this man's name was Stephen. Saul approved of Stephen's horrific death, horrific execution, because of what Stephen said to provoke the Jewish magistrate to incite this, this violent reaction by the Jews. Stephen has stood up and denounced all of this Jewish magistrate for rejecting Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus, the divine Son of God, Savior of the world. They refuse to believe that the God of heaven, eternal, infinite, transcendent, could ever debase himself to such a low degree that he would become subject to suffering and death for the sake of a people, to redeem a people that was unthinkable to the Jews. And the fact that these Christians, and particularly Stephen, kept telling this story and and, and compelling people to come to Jesus, they couldn't stand it. It was irreverent. It was irrational. And it needed to be eradicated. So thus began this widespread persecution throughout Jerusalem. Men and women being dragged from their homes, thrown in prisons, some of them fleeing frantically out of the city for shelter, all as the Jews attempted to, to strangle and bleed out the life of this rapidly multiplying movement. And in our passage today, we see Paul continuing to carry out this extermination agenda. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to focus on the first 16 verses, really, of this, of this section uh, from 1 to 31, and sort of summarize the rest, because what happens after verse 16, really, uh, what happens in the first section of the, of the chapter, um, sort of just flows as a natural result, and we'll be able to move to that more quickly. But as we go along, I'm going to raise three points. And so... I want to sort of divide people, all of you who are here, into to one of two categories. Either you are the one who is here and you're new to Christianity or you're just exploring the faith or you have a lot of questions, doubts. You're in one category and in another. If you've been walking with the Lord, if you would identify yourself as a Christian, I'm going to address you separately. So here are the three points. It will make more sense in a second. Number one. Have you been confronted? That's for those of you who are new to the faith, wrestling with the faith. Have you been confronted? If you're a Christian here, remember your confrontation. Number two, have you been converted? If you're a Christian here, remember your conversion. Number three, have you been commissioned? If you're a Christian here, remember your commissioning. Confronted, converted, commission. Let's jump into the text. Verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, Damascus was the closest major city found outside of the land of Israel. So, in, in Saul's mind, he knew that if this infectious teaching spreads beyond the borders of Israel and takes root, it's going to become a widespread 
epidemic. And he wanted to keep this, this virus quarantined within Jerusalem. And so he goes and asks the high priest, who was likely Caiaphas, the, the one who was the acting high priest when Jesus was murdered, accomplice to Jesus' murder. He goes and asks Caiaphas for letters of extradition. These were letters dictated from the high priest that would have been seen as authoritative to every other Jewish establishment throughout the empire. So if Paul had walked into any synagogue with these letters, it would have been like us taking a federal warrant into any state and saying, thus says the high priest, this is, this is a warrant that I have to take anyone out of here. And Saul's orders were to arrest any and every criminal belonging to the way. This was the name of the Christian movement before the followers of Christ were labeled, negatively labeled, Christianoi. That's where we get our word Christians. Little Christs, little followers of Jesus. Those who mimic everything that Jesus does. And this title, The Way, in all likelihood, probably comes from Jesus' own words in John 14:6, for example. When Jesus tells his disciples that he will shortly be departing from this world to reassume his position of glory in the highest heights of his father's house, and that his disciples would one day follow him there, to which one of his longing disciples responds, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The pathway to paradise is not found by the markings of certain trees and stones but by those of certain hands and feet. Jesus himself is the way to glory, the only way to heaven. He is the great bridge over the chasm of death that Saul is relentlessly seeking to detonate and destroy. And he's hoping to accomplish this goal in Damascus. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now I don't know how many times you've you've read this story or read this account, but let this scene really rock you. Saul has no idea what's about to happen to him on his way to Damascus. He probably has a thousand different thoughts, plans scrolling through his mind, like... What am I going to do once I get to Damascus? What do I do if some of the people resist arrest? When will I actually bring them back to Jerusalem? Boy, isn't God really proud of me for for being his faithful servant and getting rid of this heresy? And I wonder what city I'll go to next or who I'll bring with me. What what provisions and and supplies and, and just all of a sudden, wham, out of nowhere. Instantly, light everywhere around him. Light that he later describes in Acts 26 when he's recounting his his conversion story as being brighter than the sun itself. 
There was nowhere Saul could look where he would not be looking directly into brilliant, blazing illuminescence. And what's more bizarre is that that verse 7 later tells us that the people that were around him, that were accompanying him, they heard a voice speaking to him, but they saw nothing. Saul sees nothing but light everywhere he, he can look, and the people around him see nothing. This is, this is God sovereignly, graciously targeting Saul alone, confronting Saul, imprisoning the prison guard, not with bars of metal, but with beams of majesty. And the shock of it all just throws Saul to the ground. In verse 4 it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Now pause. When he says, Lord here, he is not acknowledging that he recognizes that this is Jesus yet. He doesn't mean Lord in the same way that you and I always mean Lord now when we're automatically talking about Jesus. In its most basic form, Lord simply means Master, one who has authority over me. And Saul doesn't yet know who this person is, but he does know without a shadow of a doubt what this person is. This person speaking to me, confronting me now, is Lord. Who are you, Lord? The mysterious figure then supplies the missing information. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Question one. Have you been confronted similar to this? Or Christian, do you remember the time when you were confronted by God? Now you may say, well, this is, this is a dramatic story. I mean, I didn't see light flashing all around me. Of course I wasn't confronted in this way. Like, it's, it's totally different than, than my experience. But according to Paul, the most miraculous thing that is happening right now in this scene is not how God is converting him or choosing to convert him, but who God is choosing to convert in the, in the first place. This wretched, depraved Man, that is the miracle. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul's recounting his, his conversion, and it's who God chooses to convert that mesmerizes Paul, and we ought to take notice of. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. This is the reason God chose to miraculously, incredibly convert me. This is the reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. That is, God chose to, to miraculously convert Saul so that 
anybody throughout human history for the rest of time could not use the excuse, I am too far gone from God for Him to call me. I am too messed up. I've made too many mistakes. There's no way that God could convert and and confront and and take a, a person like me, a wretch like me. Saul is saying that with my conversion story, God has robbed you of that excuse. God took a man who was murdering, an accomplice to murder of the very people who had done no crimes but called out to Jesus for salvation, throwing them in prison, trying to eradicate and stamp out the Christian movement single-handedly. There's nothing that you've done that can surpass that. Have you been confronted by God? Believer, remember that God has come to you and has confronted you, stopped you in your tracks, and called you to Himself. God goes on, continues to speak to Saul. Verse 6, He says, Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. We touched on that. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This period of of not eating or drinking, don't think that Paul was just in some stupor, like dazed and, and confused and drooling from the lip, and he was unable to take any, any substance in. This is, in all likelihood, this is a deliberate period of fasting for Paul, of Paul crying out for answers, of, of not being able to be concerned with any other endeavor, even the simple eating and, and drinking of of sustenance because his world has been turned upside down. We'll we'll see more of this at uh, at the end of chap at the end of verse eleven. Let me just get there. Verse ten it says now that there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord came to Ananias and said to him in a vision, Ananias and he said, Here I am, Lord And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So that last little piece of information, he is praying, further helps us to to know that this time of, of not eating and not drinking was not just Paul sitting there stupefied. I think that, that's a word, right? Stupefied, I can use that? Okay, he wasn't stupefied. He wasn't lost in stupefaction. <laughs> he was praying. He was, he was crying out to God for, for answers. They say that one of the most traumatic experiences anyone can have is, one of the, is when one of the foundational pillars that, that they sort of use to, to hold up their worldview, their understanding of reality, is knocked out from underneath them. So this could be when if there's infidelity discovered in a marriage that was once believed to be indestructible, or 
when a child is, is suddenly taken from parents who had often daydreamed of graduations and, and weddings and in-laws even. Sudden loss of a job that was believed to be secured. Any of these can be like knocking the pillar out from somebody's structural worldview, their, their foundation. But when you challenge a way that someone views the world as a whole, what they believe about God, that's like knocking down the whole structure altogether. This is what it's like to come to know God. Everything is, is, is rearranged. Saul's whole world has been knocked out from underneath him. And he's seeking, he's, he's, he's like one clawing about for a cleft in the face of the mountain after having been knocked off the cliff. He's looking for answers. This is what it, what it looks like for someone to be converted, who's really wrestling with the foundational questions of life. And I would just ask you all, secondly, here, have you experienced anything like this? Have you been converted? Have you so fundamentally encountered God that everything that you believed about your life or what you were pursuing in life, everything comes to a standstill and you are forced to address Him and come to terms with Him? Has this happened to you? Believer, do you remember when this happened to you? Do you remember, perhaps if you weren't converted at a young age, do you remember really coming to terms with, with the truths of Christianity and needing to just reevaluate everything in your life and not being satisfied until you had those answers? We would do well, those of us who are believers, to, to continue to look back at that time and apply it to many of our modern day now circumstances. Any major junction or crisis, a crossroads in our lives, do we resort back to, to this posture of God, of just waiting on God? Or do we force God to enter into our busy schedules on our time when we set aside time for Him and Give Him 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, however long it takes us to finish checking through our Facebook, home feeds, Twitter feeds, popular videos. Do we just set a little bit of time aside for God, for Him to be able to answer us and meet us in these, these critical moments? We would do well to observe Paul here. Paul has so been rocked that he can't do anything until God speaks to him. Verse 12, God continues to speak with Ananias. He tells him of, of Saul that he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias, he's, he doesn't believe it. He, he answers, Lord... I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. 
And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord answers him. And I love, I love the way that the Lord answers him here. He says, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I love this line, this verse, because there, there are two really key words in this verse to pay attention to. One, when he says instrument, the word literally means like a, a vessel, a pot, a, a clay pot. And it's a word that's commonly used in the Bible. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. And it's always used in a context to show how small a man is insignificant a man is in light of how supremely significant God is, how sovereign and the absolute the absolute ruler over all of the universe God is. So for instance in in Jeremiah twenty two twenty eight we see how, how this this instrument, this this clay pot language is used to to show how small a man is being treated. This is when the people of Israel are being taken, about to be taken into exile, and their king at the time, Jeconiah, he's being taken into exile. And Jeremiah is just amazed at, at what's happening to this, this wicked leader. And he says, Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken pot? That's our word. A vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they don't know? In other words, God, he's, this man is being treated like he's just, just like a pot that just like carries simple items that you can just toss away or throw away. That's how Jeconiah is being treated. We see the opposite end of the spectrum also in Jeremiah in, in chapter 18. When God comes to Jeremiah and he tells him to go down to the potter's house and observe how this potter fashions and reshapes and remolds his clay pot. God says to him in verse 4 through 6 of 18, Jeremiah 18, he says, And the vessel he was making of clay, speaking of the, the potter, was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. God's point is, I am sovereign ruler over the universe. If I determine to take a nation and, and bring them into another area of, of life or to change their, their course, I am sovereign to do that. I can treat them as a potter would a pot. I am sovereign ruler and they are pot. They are clay. They are just like a clay vessel of mine. That's what Paul is, is being compared to now again. God is saying that this man will be my, my, my clay pot. He will be the one who is meant to carry my name. Now, this is the second word that, that is fascinating. Carry. Because it really means to, to bear, like to lift something that's very heavy. 
It's used in the Bible like when Jesus gives the parable of the laborers, one who had worked all day and other laborers who had only worked a portion of the day and both of them being given the same wage for their workings and those who had worked the majority of the day complaining to the Lord saying, Lord, we have borne the, the brunt of the sun. We've been the ones working all day. We've carried the, the bulk of the labor. How can you pay us the same wage? They bore the work of the labor. Or it's used to describe a woman giving birth, bearing a child. And I've been told that that can be pretty strenuous as well. Or even John the Baptist. It's the word that he uses when he says, I am not worthy to even bear his sandals. Still conveying the same meaning that this person is so glorious. This Lord, this being is so immaculate. His glory is so weighty that even his shoes I am not worthy to bear. And yet God is saying that this man, this weak clay pot will bear my name. The name of God, a name is, is, is equal to saying that, that the very essence, His very presence, He will be my representative. Where I have given Him words to speak, He will speak with absolute authority. He will bear my name. And He will do so to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. It goes on in verse 16 and says that, For I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. This is going to be a a call to suffer. It's a difficult task. And just how do you you respond to that when you see this in in Saul's life? Do you... Is there a sense of of unfairness here? Is Is it wrong for God to to give Saul this undesirable task? The answer is no. Bearing the name of God is actually the most privileged calling God can give to a man. You know, in, in the Civil War, they say that bearing the flag in the midst of a battle was one of the most coveted positions. The flag bearer would be the one that would only cling to the flag and and represent his side of the conflict. And the flag was clung to more closely than any rifle, any provision. Medals of honor were handed out to men simply for their actions in, in possessing this flag and carrying this flag valiantly in the midst of battle, of capturing enemy flags. Medals of honor were handed out for that. Prior to that, in ancient Rome, in every battle, the Roman army would bring in the, the golden eagle, the golden standard, the, the scepter, it was like the symbol of Rome that served that when it was hoisted high in the midst of the battle, Roman soldiers in the midst of, of, of chaotic fighting, battling, would be able to quickly glance and know whether or not they were close to the standard or whether they had drifted further away from the standard. If they were close, they knew that they were amongst their own ranks, their own soldiers. They were close to their source of power. If they drifted away, if the standard was far off, they knew that they were in dangerous territories. 
And yet the Christian is not called to bear a flag or even a golden scepter, but he is called to bear the very name of God. Now you say, wait, 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 what do you mean the Christian is called to do this? I thought this, this was just Saul. Well, Saul uses this same terminology of, of being a vessel or a pot and suffering as a result to describe all of us Christians, to describe the life of every Christian. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, after describing this, this incredible treasure of the gospel that God has given and shining His light into the heart of a man, Paul says that we, Christians, we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's the same exact word. All of us, he says, are jars of clay. We are pots in the hands of God. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And he mentions the difficulty that comes as a result. He says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. This is the calling of of every Christian. Every Christian is commissioned to bear the name of God. Have you been commissioned? Believer, you would do well to remember that you have been commissioned. You are called to bear the name of God as His representative wherever He has appointed you in life. Now we see the the fallout of of this calling, this this confrontation upon Saul, this conversion of Saul, this commissioning of Saul in the rest of the chapter. We see that that ultimately Ananias does go to the house. He lays hands on on Saul and Saul is converted. He's filled with the Spirit. He arises and, and goes to be baptized as the appropriate first step of obedience of any follower of Christ. And he immediately, verse 20 says, begins proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And the rest of the passage is just evidence again of the genuineness of God's word concerning Saul, in that Saul does face an immense amount of of suffering, of difficulty. And we see several instances of this in the rest of the passage. And yet, it's also evident that God is with Saul and never leaves him. He continues to grow more bold. He continues to proclaim. And the rest of the passage, essentially what happens is members of his new team, the Christians, some of them still continue to doubt whether or not this man is genuinely converted. So some of them are more reluctant to allow Saul into their fellowship. So he doesn't have the full support of his new companions. On top of that, his old group, the Jews, once they hear him proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, they start to try to kill him as they were trying to kill and and get rid of all of the Christians in the first place. It's difficult for even the apostles to to warm up to Saul. They eventually do so, but after difficulty. 
And another group of Jews, the Hellenists, those who spoke Greek, they were another group that was attempting to kill Saul. And all of this, this difficulty comes upon Saul as the Lord had prophesied. And yet, continuously, we see that Saul continues to boldly proclaim the gospel. To stand up for the gospel. And the result is, in verse 31, despite all of this difficulty that comes with the task that is laid upon Paul, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Saul has been confronted by God. He's been converted by God and commissioned by God. And despite all of the the difficulty that he experiences, it's what God does in his life as a faithful, obedient follower that brings about life to the rest of the body, that brings new converts, new people, voices crying out in praise and worship of Jesus. And we know that Saul never, ever looked back with regret. We open this this sermon with words of a pretty well-known theologian. We'll close with those of Paul himself. Philippians 3, 8-11. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard these words before. If not, just listen. This is how Paul considers everything that's happened to him. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as nothing in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, righteousness from God. It depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this brief time to look at one man's life and just your miraculous intervention to to take a life that was bent on ruin and running into destruction and how you radically changed him around and used him in such a way that your church around the world even to this day continues to experience the blessings and the impact of what you did. And Lord, we just thank you that you hold this story out as an example to all of us to to look to you and to know that none of us are too far gone. Lord, you, you call all of us to yourself and Lord, you desire to master our hearts and to become the Lord of our lives. Lord, no matter how far we have drifted from you, you can take the vilest of sinners and make him the choicest of your instruments.
to accomplish mighty, mighty things. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that. There are those who are here that have not experienced that. I just pray that they would continue to wonder. They just wonder what what would that look like for me? Is, is there really life here? Is there really joy here? Is there really satisfaction and Can I come to Jesus and truly have the answers that my heart is seeking to find in every other place? And Lord, I pray that you would take those of us who you have already shown your glory and just remind us that you are all that we have and you are all that we need. Jesus is enough. Lord, we can find fullness of joy in your presence. And once we come to you, Lord, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. So Lord, remind us of this today. Be with us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.